Greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we're grateful that you have said in the scriptures that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We do that now, Lord. We confess that we are sinners. We have fallen short of your glory. We've broken all of your Ten Commandments in one way or the other, either in thought, word, or deed, even in this week. But we thank, thank you that we have an advocate. We have a high priest who is sufficient to make atonement, to justify us to bless us, to sanctify us, to bring us into the battlegrounds of life in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we pray, Holy Spirit, you would come upon us, lead us deeper into the truth, give us courage, the courage of our convictions. May we put on the full armor of God and learn from your servant Paul how to take your word into the world, into the marketplace. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We'll be spending the next two weeks looking at Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. This morning we'll be looking at Acts 17, 16 through 23. I hope you have brought your Bibles and you will look at that passage along with me. Our topic is how to take Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, into the marketplace of ideas. This is what we typically call outreach or evangelism. And it's very organically connected to something called apologetics which is a word you learn in seminary or elsewhere, which simply means to present a rational, logical case for the truth and pertinence of Christianity to unbelievers. Paul was a great preacher and teacher and writer, evangelist, and, we'll see, apologist. So the question before us is, how do we bring the Christian gospel, the good news, into the marketplace of ideas? Now, we face all sorts of obstacles. As was just said, many people have a false understanding of Christianity, so if you're going to communicate what Christ has done on the cross and through the resurrection for us, you have to deal with misunderstandings, with obstacles, with barriers to belief in the truth of the gospel. There's been a book written recently by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons called Unchristian. And he says that non-Christians in our culture, those who have not yet embraced the gospel, are hindered from taking Christ seriously oftentimes by the actions and attitudes of Christians. Because oftentimes we're not that much different from unbelievers in the world. Oftentimes unbelievers fear that we're going to somehow trick them. That we're not really honest, we're not really genuine. We'll invite them to an event and then we'll sneak up on them and clobber them with Jesus at the end of it. Now, we need to have integrity We need to be genuine. We'll see in this passage that Paul is on an unscheduled mission trip. That may seem like a contradiction, but it isn't to Paul. It's an unscheduled missions trip. And he is able to take the gospel into a very demanding, challenging situation. No tricks, no bells, no whistles, no laser shows. Truth on display through character. That's what Paul had to offer. And we'll see that. Now, it's interesting. I'm going to read you a passage here that Kinnaman says that while a lot of younger people today, ages roughly 15 to 30, enjoy conversations and thrive in conversations, oftentimes Christians are not conversing with non-Christians. 
And he says, for that reason, Jesus has, in a sense, been hijacked. The real Jesus of Scripture has been hijacked by people presenting a false Jesus and a counterfeit gospel. Kinnaman says, consider two important reasons why hijacking Jesus happens in today's culture. First, theologically conservative people are increasingly perceived to be aloof. This causes them to seem isolated from dealing with a new generation's concerns, doubts, questions, and objections. Mosaics and busters, that's Barna speak, basically, for people around 15 to 30. Mosaics and busters are the ultimate conversation generation. They want to discuss, debate, and question everything. This can be either a source of frustration or an interest we can use to facilitate new and lasting levels of spiritual depth in young people. Young outsiders want to have discussions but they perceive Christians as unwilling to engage in genuine dialogue. They think of conversations as persuasion sessions in which the Christian downloads as many arguments as possible. Now, we'll find from Paul a way of having dialogue and discussion and debate. Yes, there are arguments that are brought to bear, certainly, but they're arguments that are presented in a winsome, spirit-filled, alert and aware, culturally sensitive and biblically faithful manner. Now, folks, as we try to bring the the message of the gospel into the marketplace of ideas, we have some significant challenges, and I can't go through all of those. But we have the challenges of religious pluralism. People think that because there are a variety of religions on display in our culture that they're all somehow equally legitimate and equally avenues to truth, avenues to salvation. We have the problem of skepticism, where people say, well, I don't know, I don't care, whatever. Whatever floats your boat. Don't get too serious about spirituality or religion. Well, that is a barrier, an obstacle to communicating the seriousness and the gravity of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. There are a number of problems that we have to deal with. Moral breakdown, the lack of a sense of moral authority in our culture. Anti-intellectualism, where people think that the mind cannot be applied to spiritual issues, so they jettison the mind and just believe whatever somehow feels right or works In the short run, we have the problems of postmodernism where people question the very possibility of objective, knowable truth. Now, we also face a situation where in America we're not persecuted. We're very well off financially, especially compared to many other parts of the world, particularly church in Africa or something like that. Yet, we're not seeing revival. Let's be honest about it. We're big, we're noisy, we have a lot of money, but we're not seeing significant revival. We're not seeing the kind of repentance and prayer and fasting and seeking God and memorizing the Bible and putting Christ first that means revival. We're often not reaching the lost. We often don't even know any non-Christian people. Or if we know them, we have no idea what to do with them. Now, this passage will encourage us and build us up to develop a biblical strategy. Now, let me give you one strategy that will not work and one that Paul did not accept, and that's called Fideism. We've already learned two words this morning, apologetics and fideism. Fideism is the belief that Christian conviction has no rational basis. You have to believe it on blind faith. You just kind of take a leap and hope you end up in heaven. Now, that's not, that's not biblical. Jesus didn't believe it. He out-argued everyone. Paul didn't believe it. He out-argued everyone. Peter didn't believe it. He out-argued everyone. There are reasons to believe. This is apologetics. So, fideism in the face of pluralism and postmodernism and relativism and skepticism and whateverism is impotent. 
is not biblical. In fact, let me put it more biblically, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit wants to reach out to people and use you to do it. Now, as I go through this passage, some people may think, well, that's Paul, the great Paul, the great intellectual. He's an apostle, for heaven's sake. I'm not an apostle. I'm not an intellectual. I don't even know the first two big words this character used this morning. Doesn't matter. You're not off the hook. Because Jesus said we are to love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind and love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, if we love God because He's first loved us, if we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we want to bring that gospel to lost people who are on their way to eternal hell without the penalty that Christ paid for them. So, we need to take this message into the world with passion and with reason. We don't want to hide in the church. We don't want to hide under our Walkman. Sorry, I'm old. Our iPod. I had a time lapse there, excuse me. We don't want to hide in front of our TV sets. We don't want to hide in our cars. We don't want to hide in the coffee shop. We want to bring it out into the world. This is the biblical strategy. We'll see as we look at these verses that Paul knew what he believed and why he believed it. He knew what others believed and why they believed what they did. And he had fire in his bones for God's truth. He applied the gospel in a reasonable way with passion. And he found common ground with unbelievers. He wasn't preaching at them or yelling at them. He was able to engage them and help them to listen in a culturally sensitive and God-honoring way. As I go through this, we'll find six lessons from Paul's engagement. We won't even be done with the whole text. We're only going through verse 23. Six lessons from Paul that apply to us, even if we're not an apostle. And then six questions to you as to Christian witness, bringing this life-changing gospel to others. So let's begin with verse 16. I'll read that and then give you some background. Acts 17:16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, what's Paul's situation? He has fled Berea because of persecution. He's by himself. He was with Silas and Timothy. As I said earlier, this is an unscheduled mission trip. Now, previous to that, Paul and his colleagues had to flee Thessalonica to Berea. And they're received pretty warmly at Berea, but the characters that kicked him out of Thessalonica come after them in Berea. So they have to flee Berea. And Paul is in Athens by himself. So what does he do? He wants to present the gospel to those who are there. Now, you have to consider the glory of Athens. It was not a center of great political power at this point, but it was a very influential, what we would call, university town. A town of thinkers, a town of discussion, of conversation, of ideas, of great architecture, and so on. It was a center of great philosophy, of Zeno, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. It was a center of ancient democracy. And some of the ideals of Greece influence us to this day, along with Judeo-Christian ideals. It was a center of culture, architecture. It had the Pantheon, other temples. It was the home of classical poets like Aeschylus and Aristophanes, Sophocles, Euripides, and so on. Yet, Paul is agitated because it's full of idols. There was a saying at that time that there are more idols in Athens than people. Sort of like in America, there are more television sets than people. Something like that. Now, Paul 
knows the great cultural heritage of Athens. He was an educated Hellenized Jew, as we'll see later on as we go through this passage. He, in a sense, respected it because he took it seriously and he used it for common ground to communicate the gospel. But he was more impressed, in a negative sense, more distressed and bothered that the city was full of idols. Now, let me give you some other translations for this. The NIV says greatly distressed. The New, Standard, the New Revised Standard Version says deeply distressed. The, the Berkeley Version says deeply vexed. It's an older word. I like that. Deeply vexed. Phillips, an older paraphrase, says exasperated beyond endurance. Ticked off. All right. How about the King James Version? His spirit was stirred in him. Or the New King James Version? His spirit was provoked within him. You get the idea? Paul is deeply bothered by the idols. Now, why should he be bothered? Because idols take away from the glory of the one creator, redeemer, God revealed in nature, revealed to the people of Israel and revealed fully and finally in the person of Jesus. Idols take our eye off of our creator and redeemer. They distract us from the thing that matters most, God and his worship and his service. Let me just take you to one verse. I could take you to dozens. But don't worry, I only have three hours this morning. <laughs> Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. The Ten Commandments tell us to not make an image, a graven image. But this is a city of idols. It may be great culturally, but it's a center of idolatry. So Paul, on this unscheduled mission trip, with passion and reason, is concerned to communicate with these people. He has fire in his bones, just as Jeremiah did. Remember Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Jeremiah said, I didn't want to speak this message that God gave me because it was difficult and involved suffering and weeping, yet I had to do it because I had fire in my bones and it had to come out. Paul had that fire. Now look at verse 17. In light of the agitation and the distress and the vexation, what does Paul do? He does not have a temper tension. Verse 17. So, Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now let me emphasize this for a moment. He reasoned with the Athenian God-fearing Greeks and with the Jews. The God-fearing Greeks believed in the God of Israel, but they were not Jews. But they were monotheists and they respected the Jews. Of course, the Jews were nationally God's chosen people. So Paul, as was his custom, goes to the Jews first and he goes to the non-Jew. He said that the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe. And he says to the Jew first and then to the Greek, Romans 1, 16. And he's not ashamed of that gospel. So he brings it into the marketplace. He reasons with them. Now, there are words used in Acts in Greek for dialogue and reasoning. It basically means Paul presents the message so it's understood, and that can take work and time. And then if people have objections to the message, he reasons with them. He shows them that it is true, it is rational, and they should believe it. So he's reasoning with them. He reasons with anyone who will come along and speak with him about this. I think here of Isaiah 1.18 where God says through Isaiah, come let us reason together, says the Lord. So the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, is in Paul and calling him into the marketplace of ideas to reason 
with unbelievers. You also see him doing this in Acts 19 and many other passages. He reasons with anyone who is there, as we'll see in the next two passages, even philosophers. Look at verses... uh, Look at verse 18 here. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, a lot of us today, sadly in the church, because of anti-intellectualism and a lack of training in defending the faith, apologetics, if we were exposed to philosophers, we might run away. Or we would be afraid. But Paul wrote elsewhere in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of love, power, and a sound mind. So Paul's not going to run away from the philosophers. He was, by the way, trained in the great ideas of the day. And he was retrained in the things of the gospel through his radical conversion and his being edified through the Holy Spirit. So he was not going to turn away or turn aside. Now he's interacting now with some of the philosophical ideas of his day. Epicurean, what do we mean by that? The Epicurean philosophers were essentially deists. They believed that God or gods were very far removed from this world and they had nothing directly to do with this world. Therefore, you should simply try to lead a tranquil, peaceful life and develop a concern for pleasure. We think of Epicureanism today as the love of pleasure or maybe the more refined pleasures. But the root system goes back to this school of philosophy. Just develop a calmness towards life. Don't worry about God or the gods. So they had Epicurean philosophers Paul had to deal with. Secondly, Stoic philosophers. The Stoics were pantheists. They believed that God was the soul of the world. They didn't believe that God was separate and distinct and removed from the world, but interacted with it in a personal way. They believed God was the essence or the substance of the world itself. This is called pantheism. Everything is divine. They emphasized reason to know truth about divine reality and they emphasized ethics. So they had a different approach, a different worldview from the Epicureans. Now, Stoicism has a little bit more in common with Christianity than does Epicureanism because of its belief in a providence that things unfold according to a necessity and their emphasis on ethics. There was some overlap. But don't get me wrong on this. Epicureanism and Stoicism are a million miles away from the Christian perspective on reality, the Christian worldview. And we see this as we go through the passage, especially next week we'll see this. Now, the initial response to Paul was not that favorable. And this is a lesson to us. Because oftentimes when we bring the gospel into the marketplace, the initial response is not applause. Or, this is wonderful. You're making so much sense. What do I have to do to accept Jesus? Now, sometimes that happens. And praise God when it does. But oftentimes it requires fight, struggle, prayer, discussion, listening, failure, success, repeated engagement of the unbeliever for the cause of Christ because it matters so much. So the initial response of some people was, who is this babbler? Now, that's not the reception that I would want. If I was in a city of great learning with an ancient pedigree of architecture and philosophy and citizenship, what does this babbler want? Now, it gets worse, because let me tell you what that word babbler means, spermologos. It means 
a seed picker, a bird that picks up random seeds and eats them and then presents these things as his own ideas. That's not a compliment. The message, a contemporary paraphrase, translates this bird brain or airhead. Airhead. It means a bird who would randomly pick up seeds in the marketplace. The idea of an intellectual scavenger who mixed undigested ideas irresponsibly. One translator says, ignorant plagiarist. Right, so this is not a good start. He's there on an unscheduled mission trip. He doesn't have his colleagues with him, Timothy and Silas. He's by himself. Yet he is compelled to go into the marketplace through the love of God to bring the gospel to these people with such a tremendous heritage and pedigree, but they're lost without Christ. So he keeps going. They call him a seed picker. He keeps going. And they don't understand his message. They not only insult him, but they get the message wrong. They think that Paul is advocating foreign gods, plural. Why? It's a city of idols. There are gods everywhere. Gods and goddesses everywhere. So I think Paul is advocating gods. Why? Because Paul is focusing on Jesus Christ and His resurrection, the possessive. Jesus Christ and His resurrection. Of course, also the crucifixion. Because you can't understand the resurrection apart from the crucifixion. What do they think? They think Jesus is one God and the resurrection is another God. Well, they're the bird brains. I'm sure Paul was very clear. But this communicates a very important message in bringing the gospel into the marketplace of ideas and the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing truth to bear on the world. It's not easy. It's not easy, easy relationally. People may call you names. People might call you a babbler or something else. And then if they listen, they stop insulting you and they actually listen, they may not understand it at first at all. This is what happened to Paul. Oh, he's bringing new gods. We're used to that. We listen to whatever comes into the city. He's got a Jesus and a resurrection God. Very interesting. No, he has a resurrected Jesus. All right? One true God revealed in God the Son who died for our sins to atone for our sins and rose again from the dead. They're not getting it. But Paul does not give up. It's difficult. We need to know this, folks. It's difficult to communicate to people whose minds have been affected by pluralism and relativism and postmodern and skepticism. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes work. There's another case in Acts 14 when Paul and his colleagues went to Lystra where they heal someone in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, be healed. They're healed. And what do the people do? They don't fall on their knees and worship the Creator, Redeemer, God. They start to offer sacrifices to Paul and say he's the God Hermes. They, Paul says, stop that. They rip their clothes. Stop that. You don't get it. The Creator healed this person not us. And they barely stop them from worshiping Him. Now, what does this tell you? Even if God does a miracle, there still needs to be more communication, more persuasion, more discussion, more listening, more interaction to bring the cross and resurrection of Jesus to bear on people who are ignorant, who are confused, who don't know, who have listened to the lies of the enemy, the father of lies. Say, Friends, Paul doesn't give up. He keeps going. He keeps a cool head amidst the controversy. And we have to remember that one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the last one, in a sense it culminates and sums up everything in Galatians 5, is self-control. Paul's self-control. He's been insulted. He's been misunderstood. 
His colleagues are not with him. He's on the run from persecution. But he trusts God. And he continues to speak forth the truth. Let's look at 19 through 21. The philosophers, despite their insults, and I know philosophers can be insulting because I am one. Nevertheless, they're curious about this character. And they invite him to a leading assembly of intellectuals. 19. They took him, the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That's the gloss that Luke gives us for why they were interested in Paul. They were interested in new ideas. Now, what's going on? What is the Areopagus? The Areopagus means the hill of Ares in Greek. Ares is the Greek god of thunder. The Roman equivalent is Mars. So, this has been called Mars Hill, the Mars Hill Address. A council of leaders basically licensed public teaching. This was the assembly, the Areopagus. They were in control of the education of Athens. So even though they insulted Paul, they didn't understand him. They took him to this learned assembly of authorized teachers, the people who basically licensed teachers in the basic region. That's the Areopagus. Now, it might have met on that original hill, the hill, hill of Ares at that time, or it may have moved somewhat to a somewhat different location. doesn't really matter. The situation is Paul has a wonderful opportunity to present the gospel to the cultural leaders of the time. So they're curious about this new teaching, which sounds strange. Still, they still don't get it. It sounds strange. The gospel, the Christian worldview, will sound strange to people who have never really heard it. See, so many people in our culture think they know what Christianity is, and they do not. They've just gotten bits and pieces of moralism and some understanding of Jesus from images and maybe some songs they heard when they were young. They haven't really heard Jesus, the message of Jesus. So when they hear it for the first time, it may sound odd, bizarre, weird, might be off-putting. But the Areopagus will hear the message of Jesus from Paul. Genuine Christianity should sound a bit strange and new to unbelievers. If it doesn't, there's probably something wrong. If you're giving people what they already believe, this watered-down, relativistic, pluralistic, skeptical spirituality, people believe that and you present the gospel, the objective, riveting, life-changing truth of Jesus, they should view it as different and a bit strange. Because it jostles us. It encounters us. It challenges our pride. It challenges our self-sufficiency. It challenges our easygoing relativism. Well, just get along, believe whatever you want. No! Actually, Christianity says, repent. Repent of your sin. Repent of your bad thinking. Repent of false worship. Repent of idolatry. Repent of not worshiping and serving God. Repent of ignoring Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Yes, it will sound strange. But don't give up if people say it sounds strange. Keep talking. Keep praying. Keep interacting. That's exactly what Paul did. He continues to reason with them despite the obstacles and difficulties. The Athenians and foreigners in Athens had an interest in conversing about the latest ideas. It was a city of ideas, a city of philosophy. 
Now, it's a little bit different than our situation because oftentimes our discussions or our interactions don't even rise to the level of ideas. Generally, in our culture, we are so stupefied by popular culture that we don't get to the level of great philosophical ideas. We're more interested in American Idol than the origin of the universe. We're more interested in the surrounding chaos and controversies about Michael Jackson's death than the fate of our soul in eternity. But they were interested in ideas. And at some level, people are still interested in ideas. They are still concerned about themselves and their place in the larger sphere of reality. Why? They're made in God's image and likeness. And they know that they were put here for some reason, but they don't know quite what it is. And the dynamic is that they want to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, even though God has revealed truth to them in their person. Romans 1 explains this dynamic with great care. But it's difficult sometimes in our society, our society to even get people to talk about these ideas. But we need to work at it. We need to try. This is a barrier Paul didn't have because it was a city of great ideas. We don't live in a city of great ideas, a culture of great ideas. We need to bring these ideas, the gospel truths, into the culture and challenge the false thinking of the skepticism and pluralism and relativism and whateverism. Now, another thing that's significant here is that you see here and you also see elsewhere in Paul that he went to the leading cultural centers to communicate Christianity. He wasn't just dealing with the backwater, backwoods areas. Now, the gospel's for everyone. Please don't get me wrong. But I'm emphasizing this. Paul in the early church went to the leading cultural centers of the ancient world because they knew if they influenced them, it's going to have a tremendous effect. And they were not afraid. They had not been given a spirit of fear, but love, power, and a sound mind. They knew this was true. They knew it was historical. They knew it made sense. They knew it made more sense than any other perspective or philosophy or worldview. And they knew they had the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. They knew Jesus. He had been crucified, buried, and raised and at the right hand of the Father, interceding for them. He had all authority on heaven and on earth. So they went out and they were not afraid. Now let me ask you, where do evangelicals tend to go? Wheaton, Illinois. Colorado Springs, Colorado. Folks, I'm not against Wheaton, Illinois. Wheaton College is a tremendous college. I'm not against Colorado Springs, the ministries in Colorado Springs. But this is what we tend to do because of our anti-intellectualism and cowardice. We tend to fear the intellectuals. We tend to fear the cultural centers, the great universities, the great citadels of intellectual strength. We tend to want to kind of play it safe and not challenge the great ideas. But we need to go into the Washington, D.C.'s into Boulder, Colorado, CU Boulder, into New York City. And you have some great ministries there, like Tim Keller's church, right in the heart of New York, that great cultural center. That's what Paul did. He wasn't afraid. And we need Christians who are willing to go wherever God calls them. Maybe you're not called to give lectures at CU Boulder on the difference between Jesus and Buddha. I am. I have to do that. That's my calling. But what are you called to do? How might you speak truth to power in the strength of the Holy Spirit? You can only know that as you listen to the call of God. But there is a general call on all of us to take the gospel and defend the gospel and take it out into the unbelieving world. Your neighbor, Pakistan, Washington, D.C., CU Boulder, New York City, Los Angeles, wherever it is, that's the call. And Paul heeded that call. Let's look at the next two verses. Again, I only have three hours, so I have to hurry. 
22, Paul has this wonderful invitation to communicate the gospel to the cultural leaders, the Areopagus group. 22, this is just the introduction to the the message, the body of the message that we'll talk about next week. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very things you worship, and this is why I am going to, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Verses 22 and 23, the introduction to his classic speech to the philosophers on Mars Hill. Let me give you some background on this from Craig Keener, then we'll get into the six lessons and six questions. Craig Keener, the great biblical scholar, in his book Bible Background Commentary, says this. Defenders of Judaism had worked for centuries to make their faith philosophically respectable. And here, as in his letters, Paul draws heavily on his Jewish predecessor's arguments. So he is going to give a sound, cogent, persuasive argument in this setting. Interesting, he starts out by saying, you are very religious. Now, the King James translates it, I think, wrongly. You are superstitious. That wouldn't be a wise way to start. Actually, the word that's used means religious, and it's a neutral word. It could mean bad religion, or it could mean good religion. Paul is starting out with a sociological observation. You are very religious. You have altars and gods and goddesses everywhere. He notices that. In fact, there is even an altar to an unknown god. Paul also speaks of objects of worship. It's neutral language again. He doesn't say idols. He doesn't say, you religious people are idolaters and I'm going to set you straight. Now that's what's going on in his soul. Because remember verse 16. He was greatly distressed and vexed and bothered by the idolatry of Athens. So he goes into the marketplace and he reasons with anyone he can. The God-fearing Greeks, the Jews, and now Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in this great council of intellectual influence. So he is not afraid. He's bothered, but he's also winsome. He's wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. So he says, you're very religious, and I've looked carefully. I've scrutinized your objects of worship, and I found a very interesting one. You have an altar to an unknown God. Now understand, folks, Paul does not begin by quoting the Bible. Why? These are not Jews. These are not people who believe in the books of the Hebrew Bible. Sure, they've heard of Judaism. They've heard of some of these books and Moses and so on. Maybe they've even heard of Jesus at some level. But you see, they don't have that as their background belief system. That's not their worldview. It's not Judaism. It's Greek philosophy. Very synthetic, very syncretistic mixture of all sorts of things. So Paul starts with what will get him a hearing. I notice your religion. You have many objects of worship. And you have an altar to an unknown God. Well, what you are ignorant of, and they're admitting their ignorance with this unknown God and with all the gods and goddesses, they don't know what's going on. They're reckless pluralists. What you don't know, what you're ignorant of, I am going to proclaim to you. All right, now we've come quite a ways, but we're just at the introduction to the speech. But let me bring you six lessons from Paul and six questions for us. Some sermons have three points in a poem. This one has six lessons and six questions, so hang on. There is an outline, uh, and I'd like you to follow along and think about this. 
I am a professor, so there will be a quiz afterwards. <laughs> First lesson. Paul was greatly distressed by the idolatry, meaning the unbelief that took away glory from the Creator-Redeemer God. This was an unscheduled missions trip. He didn't have his friends there helping him, but he did have God. He was so distressed, he went into the marketplace. This is the question. First question. Are we greatly distressed by false religion in a pluralistic world? I don't think most of us are. Honestly, as evangelicals, we don't have revival. We don't have tremendous prayer meetings and prayer and fasting and seeking after God and memorizing Scripture and taking a lot of risks for the kingdom. Yes, some people do, thank God. They do. But I think we've made our peace with pluralism. It's clear from some of the data. In 2008, the Pew Forum did a study on religious belief in America. They found that 57% of evangelical Christians believe that, quote, Many religions can lead to eternal life. Well, then 57% of so-called evangelical Christians have denied the gospel. Because the gospel says there is one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. Because no one can match his achievements or rival his credentials. But 57% of us say there are many ways leading to, to eternal life. And 70% of the general public held this belief. So we're not that different if the few form is right. Something's wrong. We've made our peace with false religion. We've made our peace with idolatry, I think. Now, we need to make a very significant extinction. Distinction. Don't get me wrong. If we don't make this distinction, there'll be an extinction of us. Now, this is what it is. Political pluralism is good. The First Amendment. Freedom of religion. We should not prescribe or proscribe any religion. We should allow freedom of conscience. We endorse that as Christians because we don't force religion on anybody. We proclaim, we persuade, we pray, we fast, we seek, we cry out, we lament, but we don't coerce. So political pluralism is good. Philosophical pluralism is not. Philosophical pluralism says all religions are equally legitimate, all worldviews are, leg are equally legitimate, so you don't have to try to defend any one of them or show that one of them is intellectually superior to any other or that one is the unique conduit of truth and eternal life. If we believe that, friends, we have denied the gospel. So we embrace and celebrate freedom of religion, political pluralism. We should deny philosophical pluralism. And if we don't, we are not going to have a vital, vibrant witness. Now, are we distressed at the idolatry? I think we've made our peace with it. Some of you may have me may have seen the bumper sticker, Coexist, that has the different religious symbols. That basically says, I don't want to worry about truth, just practice your religion and leave me alone. Now, we should coexist, but we should coexist living with our deepest differences and having the ability to have dialogue with people we disagree with. You should be able to live peacefully next to your Muslim neighbor, neighbor next to your Mormon neighbor, next to your Christian science neighbor, next to your New Age neighbor, next to your atheist neighbor. You're being ganged up on here with neighbors, all right? You should be able to live in peace and love with these people. But you cannot accept their worldviews as true, rational, or the ways to heaven. Atheists don't even believe in heaven. You see the difference? It's a vital difference. I don't think we're deeply distressed at idolatry in America. I think we've made our peace with it. You go to the bookstore, you see books advocating, advocating Buddhism and Hinduism and atheism, and you think, oh, I don't like that. It's not my perspective. That bothers me. But do we do anything? Do we go into the marketplace? Are we distressed? 
that God is not being glorified as He should in the conscience and in the beliefs of people. I think we've made our peace with the wrong kind of pluralism. We may be anesthetized and tranquilized by it. Friends, we might even be lobotomized by pluralism. Second point, Paul was spiritually and intellectually ready for this encounter. This is evident from the rest of his speech that we'll deal with next week. 1 Peter 3.15 and following says, Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason that you believe and do this with gentleness and respect. Even though it was unscheduled, unplanned, he was ready. The love of God constrained him and took him into the marketplace and he didn't give up when they called him a seed picker, a bird brain, an airhead. When they said, you know, your teaching sounds strange. He kept going. He kept talking. I'm sure he kept praying. The Spirit kept leading. And then he's invited to speak to this council of the Areopagus. We need to be ready. So the question is, are we spiritually and intellectually ready for the tough questions about our faith? Let me use a term from jazz. Do you spend time in the woodshed knowing what Christianity is? Time in the woodshed means practicing, learning the charts, playing the scales. Oftentimes, Americans, American Christians do not spend the time reading and studying and thinking and praying through these issues. It's obvious from the polling data. The relativism, the pluralism, the biblical illiteracy, the lack of Christian witness, the lack of revival, the lack of renewal. We're not spending time on our knees reading and thinking and trying to outthink the world for Christ. Let me give you a very specific challenge at point two, and we've got four more to go. Point two is we need to be ready for witness, and that means time knowing the Bible and time studying how to defend the Bible. Now, you're not going to have that time to read and study and think if you don't take the time away from other time eaters. And the great time eater in American culture is entertainment. We are, as Neil Postman put it, amusing ourselves to death. We are amusing ourselves to death with television, with video games, with everything else. We don't typically take the time to read. Most adults will not even read one book in a year. One book. Now, are books the answer to everything? No. You need to be spirit-led. You need to read the right things. You need to pray. You need to have the courage to apply what you've read. But folks, if Christians are not reading and not thinking, not trying to understand what's going on in the culture, not trying to figure out the apologetic answers, what kind of a witness can we have? So let me challenge you to dial back on the entertainment and to dial up on instruction, on edification, on learning, on reading. This is fantastically exciting, folks. I've been a Christian for 33 years. I have three degrees in philosophy. I have no religious degrees. I have no theological degrees. Please don't tell the president of our seminary this. But for 33 years, I have thrived on trying to understand non-Christian ideas and why Christianity makes more sense, is more logical, and is more livable. I've looked at New Age philosophies, Eastern religions, Islam, atheism, agnosticism, really all the major thought systems of the world. That's my calling to do that as a teacher and a writer. And I found them all to be intellectually and existentially inadequate. I'm not afraid of any of them. Now, that doesn't mean I can win every debate I'm in or I'm the smartest Christian on the block. No, I'm saying this. I've looked into this, and it is exhilarating to see that Christianity, this wonderful revealed worldview of the triune God revealing Himself to humanity and providing mediation and reconciliation through Jesus, the truth in the Scriptures, is intellectually compelling. It's more than just adequate. It's compelling. 
We should be the freest, most adventuresome, most fearless people on the planet. But to get there, you have to be intellectually sanctified. You need to be fully convinced that this is true and this makes sense. And you don't run away from ideas, but if you're challenged by a non-Christian idea, you look into it, you pray, you read, you study, you talk to people. We need to be prepared. You don't have to be a Paul. You don't have to be a philosopher. You're a Christian who loves God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's Jesus' command. You should love your neighbor as yourself. If your neighbor is an unbeliever who asks you a question about what you believe and why, then you're on the spot. That's your Areopagus, right there. You need to have something to say. And if you don't, then you say, I don't know what to say. I'll look into it. I'll study it. I need to be prepared. We need to be prepared. Cut back on the entertainment, the mindless, lobotomizing activities of so much of American culture, not to put a fine point on it, and bring in the meat, the scripture, the theology, the apologetics, the cultural criticism. You don't have to start way up here. You can start with something like Lee Strobel's wonderful books and videos and so on. You get hooked. You get excited about these things. And then you lose your fear of unbelievers and you go out into the world. It's an adventure. Is anybody there? Besides the founding pastor. All right. He's the one that gave me three hours. Now, come on. All right. The third point. I'm just kidding about the three hours. There's only two. The third point. Are we in situations where we present unbelievers with biblical truth in a reasonable way? Are we even there? So let me just challenge you here. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid even to talk to strangers when you think the Spirit's leading. Try to engage in conversations. Just yesterday I was in a health food store. was talking to a guy that helps me quite a bit find various supplements and things. And we had a little apologetic discussion. Now, I didn't present the whole gospel to him. But we talked a little bit about Christianity and other religions and things he was reading. I gave him a quote from St. Augustine. And so there's, there's a start for further dialogue. In fact, I think this, this guy, John, is probably kind of a pluralist. He believes a little bit of Chinese philosophy, a little bit of Greek philosophy, a little bit of Christian philosophy. Now, I couldn't give him everything at once, but we had some interaction. So are we in the settings, talking over the fence, in a coffee shop, at a dinner? Are we even in situations where we will rub shoulders and really listen, have big ears, another expression from jazz, really listen to what unbelievers think. Paul was, and we should be as well. Fourth lesson, Paul knows his audience, his culture. He knows where to start. He's not an ignoramus. He knows what to do. He doesn't just show up and say, you're idolaters, you're not worshiping God, you're superstitious, repent. He's wiser than that. He knows the culture. Why? He loves them. He loves God first and foremost, and God's being dishonored by idolatry. And he loves people that God loves. And so he takes the time to study and to know what they care about, how they live their lives, what they think about, what they've been exposed to. So here's our question. Do we know what to say to our culture? Do we know how to address the non-Christian mind today? This takes some time and study. We need to get straight on the nature of truth. We can't accept relativism. All roads lead to God. No. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And we're really not relativists on everything anyway. People do have strong convictions on moral issues, whether they know it or not. We need to show them that they know it. And then we need to give arguments that Christianity is, in fact, the truth. There are reasons for it. So we need to know the nature of truth. We need to know that Christ is the truth. And we need to find some point of contact 
with unbelievers. We need to rely on the Holy Spirit to tell us this. Fifth lesson, Paul is taken seriously enough to be asked to speak to an important group. They didn't like him much. They thought he was strange and a babbler, but at least they thought he's got something significant to say. So here's the question for us. Fifth question. Does the church encourage the development of Christian intellectuals for the cause of Christ who can speak to important gatherings? Do we really honor the thinkers among us? Now, I've said all of us should love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind and our neighbors ourselves. That is a universal call on everybody. Professor, plumber, policeman, fireman, politician, everybody. That's a call on everybody. All right? But here's the question. Are we ready to do this? And are we honoring and equipping people to face this challenge, and especially to face the challenge in the more intellectual circles? Do we applaud when a student wants to go on and be a professor at a secular school? Do we applaud the student who wants to be a lawyer? Or do we say, well, if you were really spiritual, then you would be a pastor or a missionary? All of these callings are significant and important. And if you are a pastor or a missionary, you need to be able to outthink the world for Christ. You need to be able to know what you believe and why, what you don't believe and why not, and what other people believe and why, and then to take the message of the gospel into the world. But do we really support the life of the mind as evangelical Christians today? I'm not sure that we do significantly or sufficiently. I think in many ways we've bought into pop culture. We've bought into the anti-intellectualism and the glitz of American culture. And we don't support those years of study that is required to become a Christian philosophy professor or political science professor or law professor or lawyer or well-informed, godly statesman. We often don't do that. We view that as second best somehow. But we need to support those who are called into these areas because we need to speak to these groups reasonably, truthfully, and in a spirit-led way. The last lesson and the last question. Paul tempers his disgust over the idolatry of Athens and presents a winsome and wise introduction. He had self-control. We'll see more of this next week. But this man is outraged at the idolatry, yet he speaks to the God-fearing Jews, God-fearing Greeks. He speaks to the Jews. He speaks to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He begins to address the Areopagus. He has composure. He's under the Spirit's control, but he has fire in his bones. You can have fire in your bones without yelling. You can have fire in your bones without getting angry. Or you can yell and get angry. But this is the idea. He is passionate, but he is reasonable and self-composed in his passion. It's a passionate reason and a reasonable passion. And then the question for us is this. Can we remain passionately opposed to error while self-controlled by the Holy Spirit. This is the vital balance. There's not much of it in our culture. A lot of the most opinionated people in our culture are out of control in their anger, such as many of those on talk radio. I may agree with them, but they are arrogant, nasty so-and-sos oftentimes. Not Dennis Prager. He never gets angry. He never insults anybody. I won't name other names. That's not Dennis Prager. But there are other people that insult people gratuitously, they mock them, they ridicule them, they yell and scream into the microphone. You know, the guy in the, in the back is turning down the volume because they're yelling so loud. Turning down the mic. That's not a model for us, folks. There's a place for passion. There's a place for intensity. But not godless anger. Not gratuitous insults. We need to have this fire built up within us. The fire of the Holy Spirit. Developed over years of discipleship. Years of training. Years of prayer and fasting and seeking God and failing and succeeding. 
Years of yearning to see people come to Christ. Years of yearning to see our culture come back to God as much as possible before the end. And then it needs to be presented in a winsome, spirit-led, rational, wise, culturally sensitive, God-honoring, biblically faithful way. What a challenge that is. Paul had fire in his bones, but he had a cool head and he had love in his heart. So six lessons and six questions. Paul is a model. You're not an apostle. I'm not an apostle. But Paul is still a model for us to love God and to love our neighbor and to bring the gospel into the world. Next week, we'll see exactly what he said to these unbelievers, how he challenged their worldview and how he presented the Christian message. And we'll find even more principles and more encouragement to do the same in our day, in our generation. As Jesus said, Paul was wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. And I hope that he will inspire us to go into the marketplace and bring truth to bear rationally and wisely. Let's conclude with prayer. Thank you for your patience. It wasn't quite three hours. Lord, we cannot do any of this in our own strength. We cannot do any of this according to some simple shabby formula. We can only do this in your power as we attend to Scripture, as you clarify our thinking as you push out the idols of our own minds, as you warm our heart and even bring it up to the fiery point of caring about idolatry, of caring about your honor being known in this world, of caring about lost souls who are headed in the wrong place forever without the gospel. Lord, work a fire in our bones that has to come out, a reasonable, passionate fire that we would take Christianity into the marketplace of ideas, Lord that we would be ready in season and out of season. We would not be discouraged when people call us names. We would not give up when people say it sounds strange. We would not be intimidated by being brought into challenging, difficult venues, Lord. That we would have wisdom from on high to speak the truth in love wherever and whenever you call us to do so. Lord, give us this courage based on truth and wisdom, we pray. Now please receive this doxology. This is from Jude 24 and 25. Could you please stand for this? Jude 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. God's people said, Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.